Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell Today on This Is Hell. We wrapped up last week's shows by having a conversation with Stephanie Carlisle, who wrote the Fast Company article, I've been polluting the planet for years. I'm not an oil exec. I'm an architect. Steph explained how architecture doesn't do the best job in understanding its impact on the environment and how it is a major contributor to climate change. Let me clear my voice for a second here. Steph noted that embodied carbon, that is the emissions associated with materials and construction processes throughout the whole life cycle of a building, represents at least 11% of global carbon emissions, much of which can be attributed to just three materials, concrete, iron, and steel. Yet the focus has only been on the carbon emissions created in day-to-day building operations through things like LEED, L-E-D, rather than including its uh, impact from attaining the raw resources needed to construct a building through that materials processing and manufacturing to be incorporated into the structure and all the carbon emitted during the actual construction. Steph suggested that when we see architecture, its entire contribution to climate change should be considered from the moment the building is designed until it is eventually raised. Today, we will continue our discussion on resource exploitation, but as we start this week's show, we will go back to the starting of where all these resources originate, and that is the mine, but not what you think of when you imagine a mine with the poor and marginalized locals and their families living in deadly conditions and working in even worse for very little pay. Okay, all those abuses do remain in mining, but as logistical technology and robotics have made huge advances this century, mining is no longer a local phenomenon, but global, even bigger than global. And like architecture's complicity in climate change, mining's contributions are all around us. We see them every day, every moment. We will try to better understand the current state of resource exploitation and what it means for economic imperialism when we talk in a few minutes to sociologist Martin Arboleda, author of Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. Martin is based at the School of Sociology at Universidad Diego Portales, Santiago de Chile. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, are you feeling any better? Oh, I'm in hell. Really? Uh, you know, getting getting there. Uh, how are you feeling? Really? Are you? Is your temperature down at least? Yeah, I'm a little bit better. I got a sick kid over here, so uh, I think I got 15 digestive biscuits in here to keep him quiet. So I think <laughs> if we uh, pace the show out just right, uh, you're not going to hear anything from him. 
Again, I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Captain's Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. Now, we have been giving you a hangover cure each and every week since 1996. And while we never uh, archived all of them, although it would be great to find a volunteer who would be willing to do so, because I, I sure as hell don't have the time to, for that, I seriously doubt that among those well over a thousand hangover cures we have offered you on a weekly basis, I, I seriously doubt we have repeated more than a couple, if that, ever. Every week, a different cure. When we did the show for four straight hours live on WNUR Saturday mornings with absolutely no interruptions whatsoever, we always gave you the hangover cure at the beginning of the show because we figured it's Saturday morning and lots of people go out on Friday night and lots of people drink and lots of people drink too much. Like me. When we switched to doing shows Monday through Friday at the beginning of this year, we decided to move the cure to our last live streaming show of the week so listeners would have a hangover cure for their weekend. Lo and behold, listeners have told me when they actually need the hangover cure the most is on Monday mornings, especially today, the day after far too many people drank far too much watching a far too hyped media event. By the way, I won 250 bucks. All this means the weekly hangover cure returns to its regularly scheduled slot during the beginning of every week's This Is Hell, now on Monday mornings. And for those of you who listen to the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell every week on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, The Cure now returns to the first hour of Saturday's show. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> or okay. we should just give him a cure in general. This week's hangover cure is the, Leeches. Ba- <laughs> the Bangkok favorite, Kao Tom Kui, in a New Year's Eve article on CNN Travel that we've been citing for the past few weeks, headlined, The Morning After What People Around the World Eat and Drink to Beat a Hangover by Joel Porter and Stacey Lasto, an article we've been citing for several weeks. Oh, God, now I need to curating this. Uh, and Chuck promises the last time we're, uh, we're doing this article. Porter and Lasto quote, Perm Patawat, a food writer, researcher, and an authority in Thai and Asian food cultures, Perm tells them, the first and foremost hangover battling food choice for Bangkokians is Khao Tom Kui, a Thai-Chinese rendition of piping hot starchy rice porridge with sides that range from braised meat to spicy salad. Perm suggests eating uh, Khao Tom Kui right before going to bed. He suggests that Sang Chai Porchana, next to Bangkok's clubbing district uh, Thonglor, Thonglor, is the institution, explaining <laughs> the tangy minced pork and, spiced, uh, and Chinese plum soup would slap any drunkard back to sense. That makes this week's Hangover Cure the Bangkok favorite, Khao Tom Kui. <laughs> and I really wish I'd have thought that out earlier. Uh, I should have tried to find the most difficult thing for you to read as possible while you were sick. I apologize for not thinking of that earlier. That was a difficult one, though, so uh, good on me, I guess. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Now, there probably are people who do not think this is God's favorite radio show, although they have yet to prove me wrong. And we may have found yet another person who does not believe this is God's favorite radio show this week. And where you likely are to find those people who may not adhere to our belief system is... In small-town newspapers across the United States that imposed their far-right orthodoxy on the local innocents did not envision a fascist weekly neighborhood rag being dumped on their doorstep every week as part of their retirement dream when they bought their getaway from reality after laboring for decades in the rat race. No, they didn't envision this fascist paper dropping at their doorstep every day. 
or once a week at least. Sure, as good citizens, they want to support local journalism. That's why they subscribed. And to show that kind of caring support for their new community, uh, that can cost a lot of money. It can cost quite a lot of money, as some local paper subscription rates, like Bloomington, Illinois' Pantograph, are twice, twice what it costs to get the New York Times delivered daily to your home. I, well, we spend 78 bucks a month for getting the New York Times delivered daily. The Bloomington, Illinois Pantograph costs $159 a month. So half of the front page of last week's small town paper I got a subscription to as a gift over the holidays was taken up by a story headlined, Trump supporter unifying country. The Houghton Lake Resorter news story, which is really just 30 to 40, maybe even 50 column inches dedicated to a Trump supporter's views on, well, Trump. The reporter never questions the supporter's views, never asks for any evidence to support their views, and willfully allows the supporter to essentially dictate pages of misleading propaganda, double standards, hypocrisy, and outright lies. So why is the Trump enthusiast on the front page of the Houghton Lake Resorter? Because they have something they created called the Trump Unity Bridge, the supporter has, which they apparently have towed around 48 states, logging 260,000 miles on the road, supposedly. I mean, everything the Trump fan says in the story is at the very least wildly inaccurate, so we have to take their word for it. I'm really doubting that this thing has been dragged to every one of the 48 states, unless there's some sort of profit incentive involved. What is the Trump Unity Bridge? I really don't know, as it actually says, and they never actually describe it in the story. They do have a picture of it, and it looks like some sort of arched metal tubing with signs featuring Trump cliches attached to it. I, I, it's, it just looks like a mess, to be honest with you. The reporter, without quoting the bridge maker, says that the bridge maker told them that they remember people choosing not to stand for the American flag. Children encouraged, not encouraged, to stand for the pl- Pledge of Allegiance. He says that this was going on during the Obama era, before Trump. Nobody was standing for the national anthem. Nobody was standing for the American flag. Children were encouraged to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Which is weird, because I don't remember that. I do not remember people not telling kids to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't remember people not standing for the American flag. I remember Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. One guy taking a knee. That's what I remember. I don't remember... All of a sudden, everybody stopped standing for the national anthem because Barack Obama was president of the United States. What I do remember was a reality show TV host claiming for years that the president of the United States was not an American, was not born in the United States, was in fact African when he was, you know, that he was not African, that he was not American, but African. I remember somebody constantly airing the fake news that Obama was from Africa, some of the most divisive fake news ever broadcast. I remember that. I don't remember people telling kids not to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I could go on and on about this article and how the huckster who sells Trump merchandise, in case you haven't figured that part out yet, peddles the idea that the country is perfect under Trump. But my alarm didn't go off this morning, and to be honest with you, the entire story makes me really nauseous whenever I read it.
However, there's a glaring problem with the Trump Unity Bridge, an issue so obvious that anyone who sees it is made keenly aware of the hypocrisy, the double standards, the two faces of the contradictory Trump Bridge Builder. Aside from the words Trump Unity Bridge and Make America Great Again, the biggest words on the Unity Bridge are Build the wall, and a smaller one that states Build the wall and crime will fall. A Unity Bridge supporting a dividing wall. And at no point does the reporter ever ask about the contradiction. At no point do they ever ask the bridge builder, I see you have a unity bridge, but you're in support of a wall. So what happens when the bridge hits a wall? Do bridges go over walls? Can people go over walls with bridges? So what's the deal with the wall and the bridge? You want to find people who definitely do not think this is God's favorite radio show. Next time you're traveling, buy the local rag. You will find plenty of people who, if they ever listen to their show, would definitely think, this is hell. Coming up, the primary commodity industry of resource extraction is changing the way imperial power is being flexed around our planet. We'll have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. By investigating the major advances made in the resource extraction sector during the 21st century, we can get a better understanding of imperial power and how it is being imposed in an entirely new way here to help us understand the vast impact of the resource extraction industry and how it may actually be revealing a future of collective response and agency. Sociologist Martin Arboleda is author of Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. Martin is based at the School of Sociology at Universidad Diego Portales in Santiago de Chile. Welcome to This is Hell, Martin. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. I'm really glad to have you on the show because this is an... It, what I really like to do on the show is to learn, and this is an issue that we haven't discussed in the past, and I learned a lot from this, and I hope I know I'm going to learn a lot more just in our conversation today. You write, the tendency to increase the organic composition of capital, that is the ratio of automated labor to living labor, has been an intrinsic feature of the capitalist mode of production since machinofacturing, the production of machines by machines, became the underlying technical foundation of large-scale industries. Since the turn of the 21st century, however, we appear to be witnessing a new stage in the historical struggle of capital against labor brought about by a new generalized architecture of social production. Is any class war that people believe may be taking place today better understood as a conflict of capital against labor? Well, that's a very um, relevant question today, Chuck. And I think uh, I, you know, like to basically to try to, you know, like frame it and and try to understand it better. I thought that the primary commodity uh, industry offers like a, a very relevant vantage point because since the turn of the century, we've witnessed, you know, like a huge leap forward in the technological sophistication of the mining industry as, you know, like it gets like robotized, like a, it like deploys all these forms of advanced automation. Uh, it becomes functionally integrated, not only within the various phases 
of the industry, which is, you know, like forecasting, blasting, haulage, but also uh, w w it becomes more integrated with the different, uh, you know, like elements of the supply chain, which is, you know, like mining, uh, transport, the port industry, right, smelting. So uh, this process has unfolded alongside an equally dramatic you know, like tendency for labor uh, precarization, precariousness, right? For labor casualization, as, you know, like the industry becomes more smart, uh, you know, like autonomous. And it has triggered, you know, like some, some important uh, labor conflicts around the mining industry, which of course have reverberated, you know, like across various other sectors as well, right? Such as, you know, like ports in port industries, you know, like logistics and so on. So do you believe then that the struggle of capital against labor that is happening in mining is a harbinger for things to come in other industries or is it already manifesting itself in other industries? Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent it's already manifesting in other industries, but I think, you know, like what's interesting about the, the mining industry is that it, you know, like it offers this kind of, you know, like extreme case of advanced mechanization and actually you know like for many historians of technology the mining industry like re represents a kind of you know like a an, an advantage point to look at future developments in other industries because uh, because primary commodity production usually deals with extreme environmental conditions right such as you know like a high altitude or you know like uh, under under underground conditions of you know like low temperature lack of visibility lack of oxygen so it is always you know like pushing forward you know like the frontier of technological innovation as, and so the kinds of you know like a processes of, you know, like uh, advanced automation that, that we've witnessed in the mining industry uh, have been very extreme. And, and it enables us to perhaps get a grasp of what could happen in other industries, right? Because just, you know, like to give you a specific example, you know, like uh, uh, Google, uh, Tesla and other companies are, are testing prototypes for a self-driving car, which could be released into the market sometime during the 2020s, right? But in the mining industry, um, uh, BHP Billiton, in association with the Japanese uh, Komatsu, they released the first robotized, a fully autonomous uh, mining truck uh, in 2008, right? And this is a, a, a truck that, you know, like can operate uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week without direct human intervention. And it can communicate with other trucks uh, with the environment. You know, it can, it can learn from the environment. And of course, um, uh, so it is a very, you know, like telling and, and, and indicative uh, way of looking at things because, because it has created uh, dramatic tendencies of labor po polarization. So you have, you know, like a small clique of, you know, like highly trained, technical, you know, like, uh, 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 workers, right. Surrounded by, you know, like vast, like a vast, uh, uh, like army of, you know, like, uh, people on zero hour contracts, racialized, uh, living in very harsh conditions. So why, why the mining industry? Why all of a sudden did it become so capital intensive and uh, automation advancing seemingly more so than other industries? Why, what was it about, 
21st century mining that seem to attract so much capital investment and increases in automation, especially in light of people becoming more environmentally conscious and concerned about things like climate change. So why did the mining industry attract such great investment into automation at the beginning of the 21st century? Yeah, I think it has to do with two two uh, important reasons in you know like the the historical development of you know like the process of capitalist accumulation, which is first of all um, the what is usually like uh, understood as the new international division of labor or the new new international division of labor, which is you know like uh, connected to the rise of China and other Asian economies as new industrial powerhouses. Um, which, of course, has created, you know, like a huge demand for uh, raw materials, right? For, you know, like advancing processes of construction, manufacturing, uh, information technologies, and so on, you know, like for rare earths, mining, also but, but also for, for minerals or for foodstuffs, right? So, um, because also, it also has to do, according to Bunker, uh, Stephen Bunker and Paul Chichentel, uh, who have studied, you know, like long long term trends on, you know, like global the global resource industry, on, you know, like also increasing uh, distances from the point of extraction to manufacturing. So this pushed forward also uh, the shipping industry. So Japan, South Korea were forced, like in like by the 1990s, to develop new techniques for uh, iron ore smelting and aluminium production. Right, computerized forms of aluminium production to create faster uh, vessels. To carry minerals, right, and and this of course opened up new avenues for you know like enlarging demand. And the second reason, it's the so-called financialization of capitalism, because recently we've witnessed uh, you know like the entrance of new uh, institutional investors to the mining industry. Uh, these are economic actors who usually have no direct relation to the mining industry, but uh, see it as a very profitable source of investment, such as, you know, like pension funds, uh, hedge funds, uh, mutual funds, and uh, various other kinds of, of economic actors. So basically, uh, as a result of this new reorientation of uh, investment um, trajectories, uh, the basically the the primary commodity production industry has received a vast uh, influx of you know, like liquidity basically and 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 when you look at the figures I mean it's uh, they're really pumping a lot of money into into primary commodity uh, industry. So resource extraction doesn't seem all that great for most workers. It's not good for the planet. Why is it good for capital? I know that you just touched on this with financialization, but I've been told the market always corrects itself. So why hasn't a process that is not good for the environment or good for workers not become an industry that is better at both, forced by the demands of the market? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I guess it has to do, you know, like according to, you know, like the specialized literature, uh, to the fact that, you know, like after the 2008, the collapse of the housing bubble in 2008, uh, Institutional investors, like a couple years before, you know, like the 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 big, uh, you know, like subprime crisis, they started to 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 notice that, you know, like the 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 mortgage system, you know, like the mortgage uh, uh, assets, you know, like were 
basically reaching, you know, like uh, the end of their, you know, like their profitability, right? So they started to reshift their investment strategies toward other kinds of assets, which, you know, like could uh, offer, you know, like more uh, certainty, less risk, and could, of course, be, you know, like profitable, like in, in the event of, you know, like future climate uncertainty, uncertainty and so forth. And of course, you know, like uh, uh, food, you know, like minerals, land, search as key instances of uh, speculative investment, precisely because of the uncertainty, right? Because no one knows what's going to happen, you know, like with, you know, like water or food or minerals, which, you know, like the, you know, like the, the financial markets really harness this kind of, um, uh, of, of market uncertainty and volatility as, you know, like an instance of, you know, like profit. So, so, you know, like, uh, there was a huge, you know, like land boom, uh, called, you know, like, in, by, you know, like the global land rush, right? Uh, millions and millions of hectares were acquired by these institutional investors from the 2007 to the 2010 period, right? And, and, you know, like mining also became, you know, like a main, you know, like target for these kinds of, of investments. So you write that the mining industry's recent technological and organizational modernization transcends mere shifts in the intensity and scale of mineral extraction. The planetary mine is the geography of extraction that emerges as the most genuine product of two distinct yet overlapping world historical transformations, a new geography of late industrialization that is no longer circumscribed by the traditional heartland of capitalism, the West, and second, a quantum leap in the robotization and computerization of the labor process brought about by what you call the fourth machine age. Industrialization has moved beyond the West and major advances in robotization and computerization of labor have created a new machine age. What will be the impact of this fourth machine age on the most important component, labor? What happens in the next machine age when humans are no longer needed? Because we've always been told there's no real concern as humans will still have to design and maintain machines and determine what they should be doing and that concerns over automation are exaggerated, distracting us from greater issues of the more institutional shortcomings and failings of capitalism. So what do you think happens when in this new machine age we are uh, entering uh, its machines won't need humans? Yeah, that's bit, that's a really like important question. And I, I again, think that, uh, you know, like some of the trends and processes in the mining industry can be illuminating uh, because, you know, like there's there's the tendency, you know, like to think, you know, like the idea of, of post-work society, for example, you know, like posits precisely that, you know, like that there's a linear or, you know, like a direct correlation between automation and job destruction, right? And so that, the, the, you know, like the, this new industrial revolution will, you know, like basically abolish work. But, you know, like what I try to show in, in the book is basically um, the fact that, you know, like this um, correlation is actually not so accurate or, you know, like perhaps it's much more nuanced, right? Because when you have like in this, you know, like a very capital intensive industries, uh, it hasn't, you know, like it hasn't destroyed work as such. It has radically transformed it and, be, and you know, like it's become a, a polarizing force rather than, you know, like a, 
like undermining the base, the foundations of work as such. As I was mentioning, um, you know, like these highly capital intensive mines required a small elite of, you know, like technically uh, trained workers, right? People um, who go from, you know, like geologists to geophysicists to, you know, like technical, like operators of machinery and so on. But uh, there's also, you know, like uh, gravitating around this uh, small, you know, like a uh, group of, of, of workers, uh, you know, like an expanding constellation of um, precarious, you know, like zero hour work performing all the sort of, you know, like uh, service industries and serve, like uh, providing all kinds of services to the mining industry. And actually there's, you know, like several reports uh, from uh, specialized think tanks that, you know, like illustrate how the um, modernization of mining has unfolded, uh, unfolded alongside the sophistication of the service industry that gravitates around it. So you have, let's say, you know, like serving services to, you know, like transport to cooking, you know, like catering for the workers, you know, like hostel services uh, to, you know, like various other, you know, like manual labor for, you know, like uh, people who live in these mining towns, right? So it's basically much more complex than, than you know, like automation will engender job destruction. And this is, you know, like I think that it's important to, to see that, you know, like a uh, technological development creates job polarization. And this is one of the things that, you know, like Ernest Mendel in his classic book, and this is what's very inspiring for me as I wrote this book, um, in his book, Late Capitalism, he suggests that, you know, like uh, capital cannot transform all of production into automation. It's basically, you know, like impossible. So, so we have to understand the forms of uh, polarization and fragmentation of uh, living labor that take place that takes place within this context of technological change. You write that the technological modernization and industrial upgrading taking place across the global south after the 1980s, especially in East Asian economies, have decentered the geography of large-scale industry, destabilizing traditional meta-geographical categories of core, periphery, and even of global north, global south. How do we view the world differently when we realize that the core and periphery and the global north and global south are are becoming less of distinct terms. How do we look at the world differently when we understand that core and periphery and global south and global north may be terms that have become obsolete? Yeah, I don't think that they have become obsolete as such, but I think that they do require a sort of, you know, like a reflexive engagement from social science and, you know, like practitioners and, you know, like activists, because, um, you know, like, and I'm, I'm actually, you know, like very, like, uh, um, attracted to, you know, like Immanuel Wallerstein's notion of unthinking the social sciences, because we've become so used of, you know, like just basically, you know, like throwing around these kinds of, you know, like concepts such as core periphery, you know, like global North, global South, uh, without really looking, you know, like what kind of processes do they designate? And actually, uh, one of the major debates in globalization theory today is but basically the idea of a shift from the global to the planetary, right? The global is this kind of, you know, like uh, idea of, you know, like the sort of image of, you know, like Google Maps that shows you, you know, like a, the globe as this kind of, you know, like grid that you can really map and find your way on it. Uh, but actually, 
the idea of the planetary is intended to, you know, like uh, uh, to question this idea and basically to foreground that the Earth has somehow, or the world, the globe, has become somehow this kind of, you know, like a mysterious, uh, strange place that is riddled with, you know, like a dangerous forces that, you know, like we are just beginning to understand, you know, like the Anthropocene, you know, like this unleashed, has unleashed this, you know, like um, major, you know, like ecosystemic transformations. And, and it is unclear to what extent, you know, like there can be any sort of, you know, like control over these processes or even, you know, like knowledge of what's happening in them, right? So basically the notion of the planetary also suggests that, you know, like uh, it's a sort of counterpoint to the idea of the global that emerged in the 1990s that, you know, like was populated by all these ideas of, you know, like spaces of flows, liquid modernities, you know, like flux, everything was fluxing, you know. And now uh, what we are beginning to see is that we, we are kind of living in a new world system that is, you know, like uh, underpinned by two distinct yet overlapping tendencies towards first the fragmentation of social space you know like bordered states you know like militaries uh, militarized borders and on the other hand uh, you know like the expansion of uh, of uh, trans transnational supply chains for this uh, movement of commodities across space right so basically um this demands, of course, a recalibration of the sort of conceptual categories that we use for understanding the configuration of uh, the capitalist world system. And I think and my argument in Planetary Mind is that we uh, can learn a lot from uh, Latin, some traditions of Latin American Marxism that uh, have tried to understand uh, the implications of the new international division of labor and how the rise of China and other uh, industrial economies brings with it, you know, like the, the challenge of understanding capitalism not no longer as an Eurocentric system, but as an actual global form of social mediation. And and how this, you know, like demands new new theorizations of the state. But the, because it doesn't mean the fact that capitalism has become a global form it doesn't mean that, you know, like the state has become unsurmounted or, you know, like has 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 withered away. Right. And basically, to put it, you know, like really bluntly, you know, like the argument that emerges from these new readings of the new international division of labor is that um, these dynamics of uh, of world historical transformation are most adequately understood as a process that is global in content and national in form. Right. That it, it, your our, your book is amazing, and what you just said was absolutely fantastic. And I I, I know that our listeners are going to go, be going back and listening to our interview over and over again to get all the nuances that you've pointed out because this is really a fantastic work. And I definitely want to get to your theory of economic imperialism in just a moment. But you write how uh, you would build upon recent approaches that have considered spaces of extraction to also include logistical infrastructures, transoceanic corridors. You mentioned this earlier, networks of financial intermediation and so forth. The reorganization of the mining industry into global supply chains engenders novel modalities of state power and capitalist imperialism and yields a new territoriality of extraction whose imminent content cannot be fully elucidated by the classical locus of uh, state-centric concepts of political economy such as resource curse, dependency, imperialism, 
and so forth. So I was asking you about uh, if the terms core and periphery and global south and global north are now obsolete, only to use that as a framework so we can understand those terms differently now. So our resource curse, dependency and imperialism increasingly becoming obsolete terms when we are considering resource extraction, because at least resources still seem to be a curse for an area where they are discovered, bringing about environmental degradation, violence to land and people, resource devastation, poisoning of water, inequality, precariousness. So isn't at least a resource curse still an existing thing? Or should we, how should we rethink resource curse in this day of resource extraction? Yeah, that's a very like important question. And I think that, you know, like basically I'm, I, I'm not in any way trying to, you know, like suggest that, you know, like uh, idioms or, you know, like the, the categories of core periphery or, you know, like some of these traditions of, you know, like uh, of, of how uh, natural resources are usually, usually understood are obsolete, right? But I just wanted to, the, basically, the idea of, uh, of the book was to show that, you know, like major, like most studies of resource extraction are usually framed around the nation state as, you know, like the main object of analysis, right? So what is, you know, like in social theory referred to as methodological nationalism. And, you know, like I'm building upon a tradition of uh, which has, has to some extent been overlooked in the literature of approaches that um, rethink natural resource extraction uh, in terms of its transnational organization, right? So, um. And of course, I mean, you can see many dynamics that, you know, like resemble the sorts of, you know, like core periphery dynamics that, you know, that Wallerstein and other authors were describing when you look at, for example, the new relationships between China and Latin America or China and Africa and so forth, right? Uh, but I think that those categories are also very, uh, to some extent, uh, um not incomplete, but uh, that they 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 are framed around you know like the idea of the of the of the of the of the nation state as the foremost you know like container or you know like object of analysis of the world system, and basically um, uh, it demands a sort of you know like a, 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 an exploration of the actual processes by which uh, the mining industry becomes you know like this transnational network. And um, the sorts of political dynamics that it leads to, right? Because uh, when you start to look at the at the mining industry as it, you know, like becomes reorganized in the form of this, you know, like transnational system, deeply integrated, um, you know, like the role of state power, you know, like starts to seem a bit differently, right? Because uh, China, for example, you know, like has been known uh, to be, you know, like a sort of have a very, you know, like a more horizontal, you know, like foreign policy than, you know, like previous Western powers, right? Uh, but one thing is, you know, like what, you know, like the diplomatic relations say about, you know, like uh, uh, China's relations, but the what happens when you, you know, like actually look at the processes taking place on the ground and you find that there are some really problematic processes of, you know, like... Uh, that resemble very much the same kinds of, you know, like uh, practices of, you know, like expulsion, you know, like a primitive accumulation that were characteristic of, you know, like old imperial powers. So in a way, you all, there's also a lot of continuity in this, right? I mean, so so just declaring that core and periphery are obsolete 
or or should or or do no analytical work. I think it's not adequately. I mean, it's not it's not accurate. But uh, there really needs to be a more, um, you know, like a, an, an effort to overcome methodological nationalism in the way that we understand extraction. Because, you know, like the story is much more complex than that. We are speaking with sociologist Martin Arboleda, and apparently the police are coming for him because of his <laughs> planetary mind territories of extraction <laughs> under late capitalism. Uh, so you Hopefully write, it's not the case. <laughs> you write, the fourth technological revolution has so far been unrevolutionary. What do you mean by unrevolutionary? Well... It's basically um, connected to the idea that um, resource extraction, uh, I mean, that, you know, like uh, major uh, technological revolutions, when you look at, when looked at, you know, like from the point of view of the, of the long durée of capitalist development, um, have to some extent, and this is, you know, like clearly like more like uh, deeply developed in, in, in some of Jason Moore's work, right? Uh, every, you know, like a, uh, world historical revolution since the long 16th century has to some extent um, uh, superseded or, you know, like uh, mitigated um, the problems of, you know, like scarcity and uh, availability of resources, right? And, and, you know, like it was able to basically expand the limits of uh, the process of capitalist reproduction. Whereas uh, with, you know, like this current te 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 technological revolution, uh, we are facing, starting to see, you know, like the, the, you know, like the limits of, you know, like planetary boundaries, right? So it's very difficult that this, uh, you know, like uh, technological revolution can offset some of the problems uh, that it engenders, right? So basically... Um, it has eroded, you know, like the possibility for it to, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like enlarge or, you know, like supersede, you know, like its own limits. So, but this is, you know, like more, more fully developed in, in, in some of Jason Moore's work. You're, you write that your aim is to overcome the fetish of the commodity and to make these many full metabolic mediations visible and conceptually intelligible. What do you mean by over? What do you mean by the fetish, fetishization of the commodity? And how do we uh, fetishize the idea of commodity? Yes. Well, basically, this book was very inspired by a by a very cl a classical book that was published in 1986 by, by the eco-socialist author Maria Mies titled Patriarchy and Accumulation on a World Scale. And basically what she was trying to say is that the dynamics of the new international division of labor uh, had created this kind of opacity where, you know, like there was, you know, like the relations of, you know, like the, the, the Western housewife uh, and the the social relations of, uh, you know, like these Asian uh, manufacturing uh, uh, women uh, working in, in factories, right? And she was saying that the commodity relation obfuscates how the two of them are deeply connected by these, you know, like uh, uh, networks of economic interdependence, right? And so basically uh, something very similar happens uh, in the worlds of resource extraction. Because uh, 
you know, like uh, some of the conflicts and processes that tend to happen in the world of so primary commodity production tend to be understood as to some extent disconnected from processes that are happening, you know, like in logistics facilities, you know, like ports, uh, financial, you know, like uh, 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 districts in, you know, like global cities of Asia, Europe, North America, and so on, right? So basically the argument is that, you know, like uh, the materiality of resource extraction because, you know, like mining is so like a... Um, has such a strong imprint on the landscape, right? This literal wound in the landscape. People tend to get fixated on just basically, you know, like the hole, the shaft, right? Whereas, you know, like uh, the shaft or the pit of the mine is just the starting point of a very large system that encompasses, you know, like transport infrastructure, port infrastructure, financiers, scientists that qualify the knowledge that goes into the machineries and basically taking the cue from Maria Mises powerful intervention I think that that we should definitely try to overcome the sort of you know like this kind of fetish right just you know like the idea that you know like the mine is you know like the centerpiece of primary commodity production when it's just the beginning you write that in the alienated movement of the clockwork mechanical systems of extraction, we can also begin to perceive the early stirrings of a future society where technology no longer presents itself as a hostile quasi-autonomous power, but can instead irradiate and nurture life, an approach that takes seriously the analysis of modes of existence necessarily points towards such alternative futures where content is stripped of its distorting capitalist forms and can finally come into its own. Why do you see the potential for content to strip its distorting capitalist forms through extraction? Because, um, I mean, people tend to, you know, like, focus too much or grant too much to the, uh, like, uh, sort of negative effects of resource extraction on economies, societies, local communities, which, of course, I mean, this book, of course, documents in detail the sorts of, you know, like a, a processes of environmental degradation, social destruction that it creates, right? But uh, it's also relevant to foreground the fact that uh, the expansion of, 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 of the frontier of extraction has also engendered this kind, this form of, 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 of social interdependence between peoples, ecologies, technologies, that um, um, can, you know, like create a different kind of, you know, like political agency, a different kind of political consciousness, right? Uh, it has created uh, powerful alliances uh, between, you know, like m social movements uh, of various different kinds. You know, you could see this, for example, we, although my, my book is focused in, in mainly in Latin America, but there's an interesting case uh, of, you know, like the Keystone Pipeline struggle in North Dakota in the United States, right? Where, you know, like indigenous peoples, uh, it, you know, like uh, this sort of struggle against the pipeline, the, the pipeline created uh, new forms of solidarity amongst, you know, like workers, students uh, and, and indigenous peoples. And you can see some of these things happening in, in, you know, like in Latin America as well, right? Uh, the, the creation of new social movements that create new uh, forms of, of, of solidarity. Of, although, of course, you know, like uh, 
uh, these are just you know like in in in, in a very like a uh, uh, preliminary mode right and and there's still a lot of work to do to try to you know like escalate these kinds of relations of of solidarity to better connect people who are in the front lines of extraction and people living in cities right that's why you know like the the afterward to to the book it's basically framed around this idea of of you know like a that basically you know like people struggling you know like against you know like in, in cities that are, you know, like very expensive, gentrified and so on, and people who are struggling against, you know, like mining. I mean, it, that it's not, you know, like a struggles that are too different, right? So. Right, that all of these struggles are very much uh, combined, especially when you look at it in a very revolutionary way, especially in the way that you pointed out, looking at the world as a planetary structure rather than a global structure. You also have a very large portion of your book, obviously, focuses on resource imperialism. How is resource imperialism different from our more classical uh, colonial, settler colonialism, uh, military imperialism? And is it any less oppressive, any less violent than our more classical version of imperialism. So what is resource imperialism and how is it different? Well, I think my effort to to uh, grapple with the concept of, of imperialism has to basically, again, with the fact that, you know, like major theories of imperialism uh, are very much... Uh, articulated around the nation state, right? You know, like it's, there's a lot of methodological nationalism and major theories of imperialism. And basically what I tried to do with uh, one of the chapters of the book uh, was to say that uh, to kind of, you know, like bring the state a bit into the background and try to look at, you know, like the structural economic processes that underpin uh, what looks at, you know, like uh, as autonomous, you know, like empire building projects. And this is relevant for the case of China, because as scholars in, in the field of international relations have pointed out, uh, the strategy of, you know, like Chinese and other Asian economies for accessing uh, natural resources, raw materials, is very different to that of, you know, like uh, of, of Western imperial powers, and especially China. China has this... Um, Basically, the motto of its foreign policy regarding, well, raw materials, but many other, is, you know, like, peaceful rice, right? And, you know, like, it also has a sort of, you know, like, uh, uh, approach of, of that, of you know, like, the friendly neighbor uh, regarding, you know, like, economies in the global south. It, it really uses this, you know, like, uh, identity that China has as, a, as, an, as an economy that, you know, like, only a few decades ago was, you know, like a, a, a developing nation, right? And so it's, you can really clearly see, you know, like how schizophrenic can the situation be where you have, you know, like this very friendly, like a system of, you know, like diplomatic and international relations. Yet, on the other hand, you have this kind of, you know, like what Louis Mumford in Te Techniques and Civilization referred to as an empire of model, right? You know, like when you look, you, you, you zoom into, you know, like spaces of extraction in Latin America and Africa, you see, you know, like a militarized, you know, like a, a, a spaces of extraction uh, with, you know, like land activists or, you know, like environmental activists receiving death threats, indigenous populations facing uh, like very harsh state repression. And basically, you know, like some of the dynamics that have, you know, like traditionally uh, been part of 
uh, what's you know like classical imperialism, right? So so there needs to be, I think, an effort from social theory. We still don't have, I think, enough. Uh, theoretical methodological tools to grapple uh, with the nuances of, and and I think that a more dialectical understanding of 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 imperialism that really veers away from you know like political theories of imperialism towards more economic ones we need an economic theory of imperialism that really captures these sorts of nuances right so is economic imperialism then imperialism that the more well-off liberal can tolerate because it lacks the military component. Because I'm starting to be reminded of how many tolerated, uh, ac- you know, economic sanctions on Iraq, despite the devastating outcome and the number of lives lost due to sanctions, as is now happening in Venezuela. Do economic sanctions and economic imperialism through what the Chinese and or you have a couple of sociologists, uh, the geographer Padre Kamadi and his colleague Ian Taylor call flexigemony is that it's so uh, starting to wonder is this is this a process to erase the violence of imperialism from the view of those who are not directly victimized on a daily basis yeah it's interesting because you see for example yeah that's a, a very like uh, illustrative example of you know like uh, this this strategy of flexigemony right so um china has become China and other Asian economies have become the, the, the foremost uh, uh, sovereign lenders uh, in the world system after the turn of the century, right? So they, 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 they are the foremost creditor nations in the, in, in, in the world across some, some segments of, of national economies, right? So, um, I mean, to some extent, what I'm trying to, to show is it, that, you know, like these kinds of, of of relations of flexigemony are problematic, right? Because uh, it really obfuscates uh, these kinds of processes that are, you know, like happening on the ground and which continue to be because, I mean, there's not a military aspect in the sense of, you know, like, let's say, you know, like British imperialism, how it secured access to, you know, like of of raw materials through, you know, like the deployment of armies. But you know, like spaces of extraction are very militarized. And there are, you know, like several studies that demonstrate how, you know, like a sort of, you know, like a strategies to access resources have shifted towards a sort of, you know, like a low intensity warfare. Of course, not not deployed directly by, by countries such as China, of course, of course not. But uh, the dynamics of investment related with this uh, sorts of... Uh, strategies to access raw materials tends to be connected with uh, these kinds of uh, paramilitary violence. And actually, according to um, a global think tank that publishes uh, reports on uh, violence against land defenders, you know, like documents how every year the number of, of you know, like activists for, you know, like water, minerals, natural resources uh, tends to, you know, like continually increase. And Latin America is the most dangerous place, region in the world for environmental and land activists. Right. So, I mean, it's milit- it's not militarized as it was in the past, but there's you know, like clearly like uh, a lot of, uh, you know, like military violence, armed violence going on in the situations. 
One last question for you. We have been speaking with sociologist Martin Arboleda. He is author of Planetary Mind, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. Martin's research explores the role that primary commodity production performs in the political economy of urbanization and of global capitalism. Our final question that we ask each and every one of our guests, we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer, Martin, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write as global supply chain lead a race to the bottom in terms of labor standards, further eroding the boundaries between city and non-city and intellectual and manual laborers, the material conditions for such utopian vision become even more feasible. As capitalism becomes more brutal, does the likelihood of utopia become greater? Must things keep getting worse before they get better? Yes, that's a interesting question and one that I, you know, like grapple with, but by the end of the book, because uh, the the concept of extractivism or the extractive, like, elements of, of capitalism has started to become uh, increasingly attractive for, you know, like, people studying processes that have no relation to, to resource extraction, such as, you know, like, financial, urban, like, real estate speculation, uh, the logistics industry, uh, like uh, digital digital economies, platform capitalism. And actually, um, uh, in, you know, like her really uh, influential book, Surveillance Capitalism, Shosana Suboff says that uh, human experience itself has become the object of a technologically advanced raw material extraction operation, right? So our very own, you know, like effects are being uh, uh, extracted by technology companies who repackage them and sell them to highly profitable financial markets. So basically the idea of, you know, like, uh, it's, I, I find it very interesting how these processes of, uh, extractivism or, you know, like extractive capitalism taking place in various realms of, uh, of social life are nonetheless creating a, a sort of a new, consciousness uh, regarding uh, capitalist relations of production what what do they entail and and it has and the very notion of extractivism creates you know like awareness of you know like that you know like people who are struggling to get by you know like with mortgage payments or you know like student loans and so on you know like to some extent his life could be, you know, like strikingly similar to, you know, like indigenous peoples who are uh, struggling against uh, resource extraction, right? And that's sort of the problem that Maria Mies posed in her book, Patriarchy and Accumulation on a World Scale, that we need to look at how the international division of labor creates new relations between people, but at the same time obscures them, right? And I think that, the, you know, like, it's it's really fascinating to think when, you know, like, the, the political potential of a concept of extractivism could, you know, like, create some kinds of alliances that, you know, like, did not exist in the past, perhaps. Martin, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this morning. This is a fascinating book, and our listeners should definitely check out your work. We have been speaking out speaking with sociologist Martin Arboleda. He is author of Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. Thank you so much for starting off our week with such a fascinating conversation. I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Chuck, and for you know like the very interesting questions and, and for inviting me. 
to the show. So I'm of really course. grateful for that. And, uh, uh, you know, get ready for me to bug you in the future to have you back on. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, February 5th, 1958, 62 years ago this Wednesday, some 38,000 feet above the state of Georgia, Air Force Colonel Howard Richardson of the U.S. Strategic Air Command was flying a top secret practice mission when his B-47 bomber collided with another Air Force plane, an F-86 fighter jet. The collision tore a hole in his bomber and almost detached one of its engines. While the pilot of the other plane ejected from his aircraft, Richardson and his flight crew managed to regain control of theirs. So what happened to the F-16 fighter jet from which the pilot ejected? because a fighter plane falling from 38,000 feet might cause problems on the ground. But as the bomber crew prepared to make an emergency landing, Richardson saw a problem. His plane was carrying a 7,600-pound hydrogen bomb, and he feared that a less-than-perfect landing might trigger a thermonuclear explosion. Okay, forget about the fighter jet. A nuke is about to blow. After requesting and receiving permission, Richardson and his crew flew about two miles out from the Georgia coastline and dropped the bomb into the Atlantic Ocean because we were at war with the Atlantic Ocean at the time. No, uh, problem solved. Other than, you know, you now have a live nuclear bomb in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Georgia, which is weird. No explosion was seen, and after the plane landed, Richardson was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for bringing in his crew alive. No mention of how he flew his plane into another aircraft or dropped a nuclear weapon in the Atlantic Ocean. But in the 62 years since the incident, all attempts to find the lost bomb have failed. At least that's what me and my elite team of divers want you to believe. The Air Force estimates that it's still the bomb still lies underneath several feet of sediment in an area heavily frequented by shrimp trawlers. You know how many shrimp you can catch with a nuke? It's probably a lot. The bomb contains some 400 pounds of conventional explosives and highly enriched uranium, but official sources disagree as to whether the bomb was fitted with a plutonium trigger, which might allow it to detonate if disturbed. And if you could wrap up that disagreement in the next, I don't know, few decades, or at least until before the nuke goes off, that would be great. In Rotten History, February 5th, 1968, 52 years ago this Wednesday, in Orangeburg, South Carolina, a group of about 40 African-American students from nearby South Carolina State University in Claffin College arrived at the All-Star Bowling Lanes to protest its refusal to admit black clientele. Yep, back in the good old days, even freaking bowling was segregated. Oh, I want to make America great again, don't you? The students dispersed after police arrived, but when the students returned to the bowling alley on the following night, because for some reason bowling was big, the scene turned violent as both male and female protesters were brutally clubbed by police. Yep, back in those good old days, police would beat up people, complained about racial inequality, and, you know, they enjoyed it. And everybody was kind of cool with it. Oh, except for the people who were beaten. Over the next two days, tensions remained high as South Carolina Governor Robert McNair sent in state troopers and National Guardsmen because of a racially segregated bowling alley. State troopers, National Guardsmen, over a bowling alley. 
Finally, on February 8th, three days after the protest started and 52 years ago this Saturday, when the demonstrators lit a bonfire on the university campus, firefighters were sent in, accompanied by some 70 police. The students began shouting at the police, throwing stones and pieces of wood. Without warning, nine police officers pulled their guns out and started opening up fire on the crowd with live ammunition, killing three students and wounding some 30 others because in the good old days, cops could just open fire on the public. In the days that followed, Governor McNair said the students had guns and had shot at the police, but no evidence or testimony supporting his claims were ever materialized. In other words, he was lying and trying to blame unarmed students for being killed by police. Even so, the nine police were acquitted in court, while one surviving protester spent seven months in jail before being pardoned again. Cops killed students. Student went to jail. No cops did. U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark later denounced the police actions as murder and a slaughter, but the so-called Orangeburg Massacre received little attention in national news media in comparison to a similar incident that occurred at Kent State University two years later. And that's because in the good old days, the days Trump supporters want to return to, those were the days when cops beat protesters with impunity, even killing them if necessary. If only we could make America great again like it was back in the days of cops openly beating and killing protesters and especially people of color. Oh, that would be so great. I'm being sarcastic. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Hell. Hey, Alex, what is happening on tomorrow's Tuesday's Live? This is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Uh, tomorrow, 10 a.m., uh, Josh Syme, sociologist Josh Syme, will be on to talk about his new book from UC Press, Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. Oh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. He has his, his assistant in today. Lee, we want to thank Ronaldo Magaldi for his help with Rotten History and thank our guest sociologist Martin Arboleda, author of Planetary Mind, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.